Mm. We no longer want to have a case where we're advocating on behalf of people, but we're advocating with people and mm. oftentimes advocating behind them. So in other words, allow them to be on the forefront and lead their own movement and we work in support of them. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. As always, I'm delighted with today's guest, uh, who will introduce himself. Eric, please go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Maurice. My name is Eric Mitchell. I'm the executive director of the Alliance in Hunger. Um, I'm originally from Tampa, Florida. live here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, the Alliance in Hunger is a coalition of national partners, um, including Church World Service and other partners, Faith-based organizations, corporate entities, nonprofits, um, local and international uh, uh, nonprofit organizations, um, who are all together to to and are committed to driving policies that will end hunger in the U.S. and around the world. Our primary audience that we usually are focused on is is the U.S. government, um, particularly Congress and the administration. We at, we serve as an advocacy organization, but we also about building a broader community and really lifting up you know, what will it take to end hunger uh, around the world and what moves us closer to, to ending hunger. Um, and I'm really happy about the work that we're doing and happy about the partners that we have. And, and Eric, can you tell maybe our listeners, how did you get involved in um, this type of work and what did you do before you joined the Alliance? So that's a that's a long story to be honest. I'll make it I'll make it as brief as possible. I am a I'm a policy nerd, uh-huh. a little bit junkie, and so I, way back in 1990, blankety blank, I I was in college and I, I I majored in political science and I did a lot of internships on Capitol Hill. I went to school mm. here in Washington D.C., Howard University, which is a historically black college, um, here in Washington D.C. and from there, I, I I grew, I got the the political bug, the political and, and bit by the political bug, mm-hmm. and so immediately after graduating college, I worked on Capitol Hill, um, worked on the Hill for seven years, for two members of Congress from Georgia, uh, finding finally finishing my congressional career with the Congressman John Lewis, former civil rights leader, mm-hmm. uh, John Lewis, who represented the city of Atlanta, um, and. After the Hill, I started lobbying and worked for a number of faith-based organizations and nonprofits, helping them to secure money for the work that they do um, in the U.S. and and around the world. Um, Did that for seven years where I became the vice president of the the firm, but I knew that it was more I wanted to do. I kind of got tired of the the client hustle, you know, trying to get new clients every year and Mm -hmm dealing with so many different clients and, and really just wanted to work for a specific organization. And that's where I was led to Bread for the World. 
which okay. was, uh, this is one of the largest uh, grassroots organizations, faith-based grassroots mm-hmm. organizations in the country who are committed to addressing hunger in the U.S. and around the world. And that's where I really started to dive deep into food security and nutrition policy. I didn't really do have a lot of experience in that prior to working mm-hmm. for Bread, but there I really was able to, to really understand um, not only the impacts of hunger, but what those root causes of hunger also entail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I led their government relations shop where I was their chief lobbyist uh, for uh, almost seven years um, and really, really enjoyed that work. In between that time, between working at Bread and coming to the, the Alliance, I, I, I went private sector, worked in corporate, in corporate America for, a few, for two years where I was traveling back and forth from the U.S. to the Caribbean, um, working on specific projects and initiatives in the Caribbean. Um, but I still wanted to get back into the anti-hunger space and food security space. And so when the opportunity came for came ahead to, to work at the Alliance and become their executive director, I, I jumped on it. And um been in this role for a little over two years now. I'm really excited, you know, working with great partners such as yourself and uh really doing a lot of great work as we try to bring more awareness and attention to food security, uh, nutrition and what it will take to to address those those issues. Mm. I, I really would like to talk with you about you know ending hunger. I mean the you as well as the listeners know that's very close to you know my heart. Uh, but before you go there, uh, you mentioned you know the political bug. So does that does that mean that that um you know it was not something that you got from your parents, from your upbringing? Um or or it, tell a little bit about you know where you were born and and then how you, why you decided to to study political science? So, yeah, so that's a great question. I Coming from Florida, come from the South, both my parents grew up um, in the deep South in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So obviously um, for African-Americans, you know, they grew up in segregated system, you know, went to segregated schools, um, but they also came up during the time of the civil rights movement um, the Black Power movement, what have you, an anti-war movement. So the, the issues of service and recognizing what service means to your community was something that was instilled in me, you know, from childhood. I actually grew up, you know, reading a lot of books on Dr. King, Malcolm X, and, and another civil rights icons. Man, I grew up saying I was going to be the next Thurgood Marshall. I wanted to be be, be like Thurgood Marshall, who's the first uh, mm. African-American Supreme Court justice, Howard University graduate. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to Howard University okay. was, you know, I wanted to go to the school. Even though I found out he later, later on, he went to Howard Law School. He didn't go there for undergrad. But that's what led me to <laughs> Howard University was to come to D.C. and 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 really walk the grounds of, of, of our campus. Uh-huh. And Howard is, is known for... Um, known for service is known um, as a school to really build you know strong leaders and at that school was where the 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 bug kind of kind of took hold um i studied political science because at the time howard did not have a pre-law program so political science was the program for me to really dive deep in it and because i'm also was a i was also a history minor it really was a perfect fit and it allowed me to really learn about politics the political systems you know, ideology from across the 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 the, you know, the globe, as well as as the impact on the African diaspora, and then more importantly, it gave me opportunities and access to do internships on Capitol Hill while in college. 
I worked for the member of Congress from Tampa, Florida at the time, uh, Congressman Jim Davis. I also did a couple of internships, you know, with the uh, Democratic National Committee, volunteered with the Congressional Black Caucus during those during those periods and and was somewhat involved with student government. So that's kind of where that political bug kind of bit me. Mm -hmm. It's not that I necessarily want to become a politician, Mm -hmm. but I like policy and working really behind the scenes. And that's what well, you know, my experience in working on Capitol Hill is really being more of that behind the scenes person. I was a staffer for two members of Congress, like I said, where I really advised them on how they should vote on different legislation, met with advocates about particular issues and really served as, a, as an advisor to them, to those members of Congress. And I really like that behind the scenes type of um, t- type of work. And that's what really led my trajectory in my career is, you know, becoming a, a lobbyist and then eventually a government relations director and, and an executive director. But, but um, now your work is not behind the scenes anymore. I mean, you're, uh, uh, I have two questions about that. You know, you're, so you're, you're at present executive director of the Alliance. So you're not behind the scenes. You're the, you're the front person. So that's one. So how is that? Um, second is, um, you know, the, the alliance. As, at least that's how I understand it. It's it's, um, you know, uh, bipartisan, right? So it's right. so so that's not how you started. So so take us through that, and and um, you know how easy or how difficult is is your work then? Um, you know, considering. You know, maybe your personal preferences, uh, right, politically. Right. So it's interesting. I guess going to the second question, where you now how are we able to to accomplish the work that we do? We see this. The I always say this: not one one party doesn't have all the solutions to addressing hunger, um, and. Our political system and and, every, and everything involved in it all had a hand in addressing policies that perpetuates food insecurity as well as helps to solve food insecurity and, and malnutrition. And so it's going to take a bipartisan effort to really address um, what we see in front of us today. If one party had all the answers, then then when no, when that party is in charge, they would be be able to solve the problem. And it's not as easy as it being you know partisan. Um, and then there are Republicans who I have supported in past. This is this Democrats who have supported and vice versa. So, you know, I look at this from a, a situation of, you know, how are you as a pu- public official addressing things that personally matter to me, you know, Eric, Eric Mitchell. And so, well, at the time, you know, I worked for different, you know, congressional leaders who were on one side of the party. It wasn't necessarily that that's because that's the party I want to be a part of. It's really necessary because that's where the opportunities lie. But it's also about, you know, how those candidates fit your personal ideology. And that ideology goes across the board in a number of areas, depending on what you talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also includes life experiences, um, your own personal beliefs in certain issues, and a number of things. So I always try to look at it from that way, mm-hmm. you know, and dealing with. So we deal with we work with Republicans, we work with Democrats. Um, and we work with them in a bipartisan way. And the one thing I will say, Maurice, about this issue is that there are, you know, believe it or not, what you don't see on, the, in, on in radio and on TV is that there are 
members of Congress and politicians on both sides of the aisle who do care about addressing hunger, whether it's U.S. hunger, whether it's global hunger or mm-hmm. both. Um, the Congressional Hunger Caucus is a caucus that's um, not as well known as others, but it's very bipartisan. On the House side, you have a Congressman Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, as well as on the on the on the Republican side, you have uh, Congressman Mann, who both are you know political political opposites, but they both believe in they both are co-chairs of the Congressional Hunger Caucus and believe that addressing hunger is something that needs to be solved by both sides of the aisle. Um, and so we we work with folks who are who are trying to find those those type of solutions. Okay, I I think actually you know after listening to you, uh, Eric, that we can skip my first question. You know, how do you feel now being in front of an organization? Because oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I I I I felt you. Uh, you know, I I I see. Uh, I hear where you're coming from. Um, I I do want to continue piggybacking a little bit about hunger in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've, you know, walk talk listeners, listeners from all over the world. And, you know, they consider the U S as, you know, one of the richest countries in the world. Um, you know, how is it possible that there is still hunger in this country? So can you maybe describe a little bit about the landscape? What are we looking at here? Um, one. And then the second question is, um, yeah, what, what is, what is this country then trying to do about it? It's still, you know, about hunger in, in, uh, you know, in the U.S. Right. And that's something that we don't even really talk about a lot is the level of hunger in the U.S. So hunger is measured by food insecurity. Food insecurity is basically a wonkish term to say that these are Americans or families who any given day are are at risk of not having um, a meal. So or they have to sacrifice their meal to be able to pay for their or do in order for their children to have food or in order for them to pay their bills, hmm. um, et cetera. And so while food insecurity in the United States isn't as drastic as it is in other countries, hmm. reality is that there are a large number of Americans who are facing food insecurity. And I think the recent data that I'm trying to to um, pull up is that um, close to one in five Amer- adults in the United States are considered food insecure. It's almost, I think, a little over 20% of Americans are considered food insecure. And that means that wow. any given period, they're trying to figure out how they're going to mm-hmm. how they're gonna put food on the table. Um, one of the things that has to be talked about, what are those root causes? And those root causes go across the board. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's health as a result of uh, health care, as a result of uh, homelessness, lack of education, um, the systematic issues, as you do talk about racism and social justice and other things. Uh, gender plays a major part. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of times it's also about just being able to afford the food that you eat. Um, and a lot of Americans who are working Americans do not earn enough to be able to feed themselves, pay their bills, manage their health care, and everything that goes in between. And sometimes they have to make those hard choices to determine, okay, do I pay, do I, do I buy these extra set of groceries or do I pay my light bill? Or we have had a healthcare emergency. How do I pay that? I'm uninsured. How do I take care of that? Um, or how do I pay my rent? And those are just tough questions that a lot of Americans have. So it's, it's not an easy answer, uh, easy question to answer, Maurice. And it kind of is, it depends on the situation of, 
of, of, the, of the individual. But I will just say that, you know, hunger in America is real. It's something that needs to be addressed. Um, and I think to answer your second half of that question, what is being done about it? I mean, organizations mm-hmm. like ourselves, you have organizations like Feeding America and, and the groups who are, you know, who run hundreds and thousands of food banks around the country mm-hmm. who are addressing those immediate needs of food insecurity, you know, so that Americans are able to go and be able to get food that they need to take care of themselves for that day. But then you also have advocacy organizations that are looking at those root causes of hunger. You know, what 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 is what is driving people to be facing a situation that where they have to deal with these type of circumstances. And so and both of them are are important. You can't you can't food bank your way or chair or charitable donation your way out of hunger. It does take policy and advocacy. And that's where groups like yourself, your organizations like yourselves, you know, the Alliance in Hunger, Feeding America, and others is so important because we're talking about specific policies that it will take to address food insecurity in America. I'm also, I also feel positive because over the last few years, um, there has been more awareness around uh, hunger and malnutrition here in this country. And there's been, and it's, and it's raising to the level where it's starting to get the attention that it truly deserves from a policy standpoint. Just last year, uh, the administration um, did a, a bipartisan summit, mm-hmm. uh, a White House summit on hunger, nutrition, and health, mm-hmm. where hundreds of advocates around the country came to Washington D.C. to to address specific policies and bring make commitments to what they're going to do to solve the crisis of hunger in America. Um, legislation was passed last year to help support this uh, this conference, and this this was bipartisan legislation. Um, that was passed through Congress. And so, and, and you're hearing often from the administration and from Congress and others where they're talking about the need to bring in more resources to address hunger and nutrition. And so I, I see where there is more conversations. Obviously, I think the devil gets into the details about how we get to the end result. And there may be ideological differences on how we get there. But I think there is finally recognition at a high level where we're saying we recognize that hunger in America is real and it's, we need to come to the table about it. And it's more than just the public sector doing it. You have the private sector who's also engaged mm-hmm. on it. And so I think that's where I'm starting to see a, a pivot. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and, you know, and I think there's going to take a a lot of effort in 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 our elected with our elected officials to make this possible. And this legislation that we're going to be advocating this year that's going to address hunger um, in this upcoming farm bill, which is major legislation that prioritizes our domestic nutrition programs, our emergency food assistance programs, both domestic and globally, where Congress has the opportunity to finally say, okay, this is our chance to to put together a package that will really address hunger. In the U.S. and around the world, this is our opportunity to do it, and it's going to be up to us as the advocacy community to hold their feet to the fire. Hmm. No, I'm 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 really um, you know ha- happy that that you are mentioning this strategy. Uh, that has been approved, as you, and as you said, which is a result of a bipartisan effort. Um, I, I really think that's a good start. I, I 
Now, you and I talked about this. I, I think not enough people do, are aware of this strategy. Um, so we need to, you know, all the different stakeholders. And that's sort of, that means not only the government, but including, you know, organizations like ours, you know, need to spread the word. You know that at the end of March, I'm, I'm planning to do, do my 1100 miles. So one of the topics that I hope to discuss with people in Seattle and in my virtual community is around this um, national strategy as well. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm really glad that that you're mentioning that, and you know it's I think it's 44 pages or so with a lot of actions. Um, what I understood, it doesn't need a lot of, doesn't have to go to the house, etc., for approval. You know, a lot of those actions can continue because the strategy has been approved. So that's really a good thing, and um, you know we we all of us together should be able to end hunger in the world, but definitely within the US. Right. Um, you know, that, that, that should go faster. Um, you know, I, I'm also very cognizant, Eric, that, uh, you know, especially my international listeners might not be familiar with the farm bill. Is, is that a short way for you to maybe explain what it what that is and how it's related with food security and hunger? Sure. So the farm bill is, is a major piece of legislation that gets considered every five years by the U.S. government, by our U.S. Congress, that really sets the standards for our food policy in this country. How food is grown, how it's cultivated and processed to what ends up on your table and, and the cost of that food, what gets subsidized, what doesn't. It also, from the U.S. perspective, it authorizes our, our nutrition assistance programs here in the United States that um, are, are, are the safety nets essentially for low-income families here in the United States. And it also authorizes the programs that that handle our, our emergency food assistance globally. So um, money that is given to the UN, you know, through World Food Program, the money that's given to those program to, to those initiatives is is authorized out of the farm bill. And essentially what that does is it takes commodities that's grown here in the United States um, and is is used overseas for emergency food assistance, um, as well as nutrition programs, global nutrition education programs, and what have you. So this bill really does address how the United States is going to um, focus and prioritize food, both from the you know the day-to-day food that you buy from your store and you you serve on your table to food that's distributed around the world in time of need. And so that's why I look at this as, as a true anti-hunger legislation, because mm. it's looking at the, the the immediate need as well yeah. as setting the stage for long-term uh, progress around our food and ag policies. So a bill that's both important within the U.S. as well as outside of the U.S. in terms of ending hunger. And, and you're right. referring to World Food Program. I think the U.S. is the biggest uh, supporter of the World Food Program uh, commodities, Correct. right? And yeah, right. Okay. Yep. You know what? What you often hear, Eric, is that yeah, but you know, we spent so much money on these handouts. Um, how how much money are we talking about, and and how does that relate with some other expenditures? You have? Can you give any idea to the listeners, or or uh, am I asking you know um, a complex it's, question? So the twenty. So the farm bill that was last authorized was was close to was over 400 billion dollars um 
a large share of that went towards our nutrition programs. Mm-hmm. Our, our like, but um, a good number of that, you know, went to other 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 things like conservation, crop insurance, what have you. The nutrition programs that are in the United States, um, you know, that I just mentioned, that really took a lion's share of that funding, which was close to seventy six percent of that pie. And then the remainder of that pie went towards everything else. And so, mm-hmm. so a lot of that money is dealing with food security here in the United States. Okay. But even out of that 420 billion, um, a good share of that that goes towards like food for peace and what have you, um, is is still a significant amount. And so from a from a global context, you know, that money is then used to leverage other resources from other agencies, other countries, um, to help with emergency food assistance, you know, at time of need. So when there's a, so when there's a major earthquake, for example, that we we, we saw in uh, Turkey and Syria, there's money that is that's coming from the UN, USAID, USDA, and other agencies, global and U.S. agencies that are helping with food assistance, you know, in that region. When you're talking about um, Sudan, Somalia and other parts of the world, Yemen, where we're seeing famine-like conditions happening in those countries, both emergency nutrition assistance that is usually done through the U, through the UN agencies like WFP, UNICEF, and others, but that and but are all, but also there's money is given directly from the United States, like from, from US agencies like USAID and what have you, that's helping to address those mercy food, you know, those mercy famine-like conditions that you see. So all the different conflicts and, and, and circumstances that we see around the world, money that's authorized out of this bill and other and other legislation as well, it helps to support, you know, the efforts that we are trying to do to 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 address the, mer- the immediate food needs in those countries. Hmm. And and I, I'm just thinking about this, Eric. Maybe in the in the podcast notes we put a link. Um, you know, so people can can click on it, and then you know, because you know, some some people are visual, so that might be helpful for them to to look at the pie chart. And and I know that the alliance has uh, resource materials around that, so so maybe make a link to to that. Yeah, and um, I can so send, that, and I, and and we can share the link. I can share the link to you that's coming from USDA mm-hmm. that talks about the the last legislation that passed. Yeah. Um. And it really shows the pie chart and how it's divvied up and, and, and kind of gives you a sense of where that money is going. Great. Great. Um, hey, yeah, let us go back to the origin of, of this particular podcast. It, it's a spin-off of a, you know, of a hundred mile walk that I've been doing for more than 10 years now. The 11th will be done, as I said earlier, at the end of March. Um, really was you know a result of of uh, me not being able to to walk with others uh two years ago during when the covid started um and then it has gone out of hand <laughs> you know we <laughs> are on at more yeah more than 100 episodes have been made um but the question i always ask well you you know i i walk 100 miles to um to raise awareness and funds to end hunger, uh, poverty, and injustice. Um, 
Eric, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles, and I know that you can walk because you and I walked in Guatemala together <laughs> to look at the Growing Hope and CWS projects. Um, yeah, what, for which course would you uh, walk? Wow. So, you know, as I think about that question, it's so obviously I would, I there's so many causes I'd want to walk for, right? Um, social justice is something and racial equality is something that is, is near and dear to my heart. But also what everything we just finished talking about, you know, hunger and poverty. There are so many people in this country who are in the world who are suffering. And a lot of times it's through no fault of their own. It's just by circumstance of where they were born and other sources, what gender they're born and, and identities and other things, religion. And a lot of the problems that we see here in the world are man-made or man-caused, right? Which means that we as man, humans, can find the solutions to these problems. And I think to answer your question, if there was a cause that I would want to walk 100 miles for, it'd be a combination of, of addressing the inequalities, inequities, and injustices that you're seeing around the world, whether that is hunger, whether it's the lack of job opportunity, lack of education, um, all those things that I, I think are, are near and dear. You and I just spent time in Guatemala where we talked with communities who were devastated by their own country, to be honest, by actions within their own country. And now they're here to rebuild. Now they've come back and, and are rebuilding and are trying to thrive as much as they can with the limited resources that they have. But also recognizing that they're still re relatively ignored by their government. You know, they need someone to be able to walk on their behalf and bring awareness to the plight that they've, they've, they have to deal with, as well as the fight that they're continuing to make today. You know, we talk about indigenous communities here in the United States, those groups who are who are disproportionately impacted by um, racism and sexism and, 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 and inequality here in the United States. You know, all these groups need to be need to have voice, their voices lifted up. So I don't have a, a, a direct one cause, Maurice, that I'll say I, I'd mm -hmm. want to walk for. I would say I really want to walk to fight inequality everywhere because I think it all needs to be addressed. Okay. Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, what makes you getting to get out of your bed in the morning? <laughs> besides the besides having to take my kids to school every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I would be honest to say I'm 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 a father of two two daughters, mm -hmm. uh teenage girls who are who are trying to figure out their place on this in society. Mm -hmm. And what gets me up every day is knowing that I'm working to try to make their world a better place. Um, you know, everything I do is really for them because I see the challenges that they are that they are facing as well as what lies ahead of them. And um, but I also see the, the hope in their eyes because again, generations are more enlightened as generations get older, they become more enlightened. So in other words, my generation is more enlightened than my parents, their parents, and my kids' generation is more enlightened than, than, than ours. 
And so they see the world from, from a different perspective and lens that that's more inclusive than the world that I saw growing up. And so I want to make sure that, you know, they actually can, can have what they need and, and be able to have a voice to be able to fight for that level of in, inclusion that they, that they, that they are, that they are witnessing and make and see that coming to fruition. So I think, yeah, there's there that that's what drives me is to know that we are not we're in a place right now where we are not making the world better for our generation and for our kids. And we need to fix that before it's too late. Let us let us continue talking a little bit about the, the next generation, the youth. Um, and it is I, I would like to relate them with a topic that I often talk about during my walks. Um, because I, I think there is something spiritual about walking, and you know, it makes you to think about why are we on earth, etc. What, what what do you see happening among youth in your community, especially in relation to uh, religion and spirituality well it's interesting i think it's funny overall i see like this generation today is way more outspoken than than we were and definitely than what i saw in the past like my generation you know i grew up in the i'm the product of the 70s and 80s and 90s where we kind of lived off of the, the 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 wins that were accomplished from the civil rights era of the 60s and 70s and and 50s so we kind of i won't say we got lazy but we kind of just felt comfortable i always have to laugh about that generation uh, uh, eric because i am also part of that and in the netherlands they call the generation the french fry generation so that's not and that's not a good thing <laughs> right <laughs> it, it, yeah i mean we just we, we kind of live and off of the legacies that our, our our parents and grandparents fought for and um, mm-hmm. got to kind of, I would say, overall, maybe became complacent. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see certain things, some certain trends reverse, right? Mm-hmm. And so this new generation, because they're growing up in a, in a society where it's more inclusive, more, I'll just say, to be honest, you know, it's very integrated, more inclusive. They see things from a different perspective in life. They're they're willing to say, hey, that's not right, you know. And they're and you're seeing groups and generations uh, speak out, even if it's on issues that don't directly impact them. For example, I'll just to drill it down. The most recent here in the United States, you know, after the the the, the killing of George Floyd um, in 2020, you saw black, white, straight, gay, all t- people from all different cultures marching in the streets. You know, talking about Black Lives Matter, right? And I know that makes people uncomfortable to a certain extent, but the reality is, the reality is, the beauty of that seeing all these cultures and people come together to speak on behalf of a of another community and saying that something isn't right. This isn't right. What what's happening to to the to to that community? And and to, and it was all it was driven by young people. Similar to what you saw in the 60s, the movements that you saw in the 60s, whether it's the civil rights movement or the anti-war protesting or what have you, 
was driven by young people. And to me, I always say that that is where nobody really to make changes. Because once you become, once you are 30 and older and you have bills to pay, you start to kind of worry about the day-to-day, what do I need to do to take care of my, my family, et cetera. It's the young people that, that ain't got, quite frankly, ain't got nothing to lose. And they're like, we're willing to go out into the streets and demand change. And, 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 and that's a good thing because you're starting to see that bubble up again. So um, that's where I see. So as it relates to spirituality, you know, it, it, in the past, what drove the, the, these movements was a lot, particularly in the black community was the church, you know, drove a lot of these, these movements. But here, I think today's society, you see is, is more about individual perspective, individual beliefs. Um, I know not a lot of folks go to church like the way they used to, but at the same time, people still believe in something and they believe in a higher calling. They believe in God or, or, or whomever, but they all, but they, they know that it's, they, they believe that there's a higher calling and a, and a, and a more pure purpose of right and wrong. And so I see that the spirituality is really driven from an individual perspective um, mm. as it relates to our, a lot of our young people. Yeah. And, and do you see that also in your children? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 we go to church and, and, and everything, but the things that drive my kids is really just a matter of like, what's right, what's wrong, what's fair. It's almost like an idealistic approach, which, you know, for a lot of us who are 40 plus, we're like, we're more based in what we call realism, <laughs> but, and they have more idealistic approach to, to things, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. And so w- one thing I appreciate, especially having two girls is that we try to empower them to be comfortable speaking up and speaking out and speaking out on behalf of themselves. And you see that more. And it's a challenge, you know, cause you grow, you know, we all grew up in a system where the adults is right. You have to listen and obey. And th- but now we're encouraging them to kind of push back a little bit. And I think it's going to benefit them as they grow and to become more confident in themselves and who they are as grown women, as adults. No, th- thanks for sharing that, uh, Eric. I, I, um, I, I, I do think you know our generation, together with some other generations, are not all that bad. I, I, I think as a result of um, realizing that this world has a lot of cha- uh, challenges, um, we as a world, and, and, and you know this, came up with seventeen sustainable development goals. Mm-hmm. And I really always try to talk about this because I think the world should know more about this. Right. Um, you know, these goals are set, and if we reach them. And we should reach them before 2030. Then you know this world will be in a in a better position. Right. Um, my question to you is: What do you want the listeners to know about the Sustainable Development Goals? That's the first uh, question. Then the second part is: We are not making the progress that we need to make on those right. 17 goals, and therefore um, there is a movement now within the world that said: You know, we are not making the progress because we did not pay sufficient attention to the skills, abilities, um, uh, and knowledge that you need as an individual and as a community. So, and as a result, they came up with the inner development goals. Mm -hmm. So my question around that is, um, have you heard about the inner development goals? 
you know, yes or no. And if you have, um, you know, what do you think about the role of the inner development goals in relation to the sustainable development goals? So as it relates to sustainable development goals, um, what I want the audience to know is that these goals are not something that just came up about in a small boardroom (laughs) with, 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 with powers that be, it really was a, a, a goals that were developed that we are thinking that let me back up. You know, the the, the SDGs, what I want folks to know about the SDGs is that they're all interconnected. Whether it's the goal to address poverty, address hunger, to address climate, clean water, uh, equality, gender equality, all these things are all mm-hmm. connected and you can't have one without the other. You can't solve hunger without solving poverty. You can't solve these without dealing with gender equity. Water plays a sustainable, plays a major role in all of our lives. You can't have, uh, you can't address any of these things without clean water, clean air. And so when we look at the SDGs, um, they were intentional in 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 having, in in having being able to have those type of that kind of connection, and then specific metrics underneath each goal. To say that we can accomplish these things if we if we address these key metrics towards that goal, they were meant to be hard, but they're also meant to show that they can be solvable and achievable with the political and public will to do so. And that's where the back end comes. That's part of the reason why we're having a hard time to get towards these goals. We were we were on a positive trend as it relates to, for example, the second SDG, which is which is the, the goal to ending hunger and malnutrition, SDG 2. We were on a positive trajectory. Um, obviously, as we saw you know, prior to 2014, hunger was going down across the world. And so that's why we, we created this as a goal that, okay, we can truly get to a, 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 ending, a moment where we could say, we have a solution to, to ending hunger by 2030. Then the world started to change. They started to have conflicts around the world and certain parts of the world was starting to drive those numbers up, which again goes back to other parts of the SDGs that shows that, okay, you can't address, you can't address hunger if there's conflict and war and climate issues and all these other things. And you have to be able to solve one in order to address the problems of the other. And so when COVID hit, that obviously blew everything up, particularly as it relates to our hunger numbers. And the reason why you see the where where we are now, just to kind of put things in perspective, you know, in the last statistics were done, which was 2021, you know, we saw that close to 830 million people around the world facing hunger, right? And that is literally a 20% increase from previous year. That's the direct result of the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so we have to now kind of reel ourselves back. And now you have issues like the war in Ukraine, which is the, the war in Ukraine, which is addressing food insecurity globally, rising costs of prices uh, around food around the world. You know, the numbers, are, the, 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 the goal is getting bleaker and bleaker. But I think to answer your second question, which is the inner development goals, and to be honest, not something I completely heard of, but you know, I looked it up a little bit when you asked that question. And to me, it kind of it deals with the 
the priorities within ourselves as future leaders and as leaders to be committed to these goals in order to us to actually implement these SDGs. Hmm. So I think this, it is something that is, 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 is interesting because obviously in order for you to want to address SDG to address any hunger, you have to be committed to wanting to make that a personal drive and goal and mission hmm. yourself. And my understanding is through the, 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 the inner development goals that kind of sets the level of standards and things and commitments that I think we as individuals, we and you know these leaders and, and governments can do to commit to implementing internally, which then helps to reflect within the SDGs. But one way of seeing that, for example, going back to the COVID pandemic, as a result of the COVID pandemic, you saw a rise in groups saying we need to solve problems around hunger here in the US and globally. So you now you have companies across the and, and CEOs and all these other groups who weren't necessarily focused on these issues prior to COVID now saying, man, this is something that we actually see is a, is a, is is an issue here in this country and we want to find a way to address it and are actually now putting resources towards addressing it. And so that's one of those examples where you're seeing where you see people now looking outside of their bubble and seeing these these issues from a from a larger perspective and are willing to actually put resources and talent and money behind solutions to addressing. I hope that answers your question. No, no, no. I and 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 uh, I really appreciate you know what you're trying to lift up, and you know one of the good things of of uh, that happened because of the pandemic I mean, it was an awful situation that we were in but what we did realize i think is that we are all interconnected as you said right um and uh, you know for me it relates to also then the inner development goals realization that you're interconnected more um you know the need for empathy the need for collaboration uh you know and ultimately action so so you can have all kinds of the changes in the system that you are aspiring for and 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 um, working on, but you need to do things as an individual, and you need to th- to do things as a uh, community as well. And and realizing that we are interconnected, um, that you know we might have solved the problem for our own little household, but ultimately, you know. <laughs> Uh, if the rest from the, of the world is not making progress, then you, you know, it will backfire again. We need to w- do this together. I, I think and, that's what I heard you say. Yeah, um, and, just and now. I think, yeah. And, I, and to be honest, I, and, and I've never one try to put a positive spin on the COVID pandemic, hmm. <laughs> but I will say that that is what this pandemic. I think as Americans, it opened our eyes towards right. It, it opened our eyes that we're not siloed from the rest of the world. That what happens across the globe eventually impacts us here directly. And I think everything that you're seeing um, that's happening in this country as it relates to food security, our, our economy, health, all those things, we, we, were, we were fighting that same battle here in the United States that you saw in India and Indonesia and China and, and UK, Ethiopia, no matter where you are around the world, we're fighting that same battle going through. And it and, and it was it took a pandemic for us to realize that, hey, 
you know, what happens overseas does actually impact us. And we're still clawing our way out of it. You're right. We, I don't think we're, the pandemic itself, COVID itself, isn't going away anytime soon. And the impact of COVID does not go, is not going to go away anytime soon. And if we don't, we aren't smart, we can see ourselves back in the same crisis again at some point. That's where policy is going to be important. And I think, and, and, and I do agree that we as society real are now, that's why we're, we've kind of opened our eyes and, and care now about what's happening across the globe. And you see more openness to foreign assistance and, and other issues, because we now recognize that what happens across the globe does impact us here. Um, and it's just going to take us as a community to keep reminding our elected officials about that same thing, because eventually, you know, as it, the, 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 when the rubber meets the road, politicians are going to respond to what they think constituents care about. And if there aren't enough constituents who are saying, hey, you still need to keep your eye on the ball and addressing global crises, um, then politicians are going to move away to the next the next big thing or the next thing that they think their constituents are going to care about. Yeah, keywords, interconnectedness and, and connection. So my next question, uh, Eric, is about connection. I'm connecting you with the previous guest who has a question for you. I would love to know what our next guest is doing to break the cycles of business as usual. How are they innovating in their lives to create change in a way that disrupts what we already know to be to give us a better future? Eric, what do you think? So what are we doing to disrupt and break the 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 status quo cycle of change. So I'll just tell you about what we do from a day-to-day for my, my work here at the Alliance. I mean, part of that is really why I came back to the Alliance in Hunger in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when I I was I was brought on board here during the COVID pandemic, and I was I was seeing how as it relates to our food prices and food policy, it's like, okay, you have outsourced lettuce and, and eggs and things that are being thrown away now because the restaurants aren't opened up to be able to take these things. And yet at the same time, you still have food lines around the, you know, wrapped around blocks that where additional food is needed. So obviously there, there, there's an issue of us addressing supply chain. And so one of the things that we've done at the Alliance is as a membership organization, we started to raise this and lift this up to our policymakers about what are we doing to address the supply chain as it relates to food security, which impacts food prices, the availability, access, and all these different things. We also are looking at ways to talk about our food policy in a different way. You know, and I would say previously, what we've often seen is organizations, you know, we talk about things in a silo. So nutrition, our nutrition programs here, conservation here ag and ag development and, and resources are in, in this this lane without really blending these conversations together and saying what is this doing from a from a large perspective to address food security and hunger 
and re and keep reminding reminding the public and, and our elected officials about what is this doing to end hunger? Ending those hard questions. We were one of the one of the main organizations to lead a massive letter writing campaign to get the White House to even commit to doing a national strategy around hunger. You know, going again, going back to what I said before about mm -hmm. being as act as activists, kind of keeping politicians held holding them accountable, keeping their feet to the fire and raising awareness around hunger and food security. Now, this isn't something that the White House just walked into and said, hey, we want to do a conference around hunger. Uh, the White There hasn't been a, a White House-led conference on hunger in 50 years, right? But it took the Alliance and members and other groups to bring mm -hmm. multiple organizations and individuals together to do letter writing campaigns and, and activism around getting you know, the Biden administration to say, we need you guys to commit to this, to doing a conference and not only commit to doing a conference, but laying out specific priorities or goals and objectives to actually accomplishing, addressing hunger uh, in America. And they did. Now the, the back end is, okay, now we got to go from saying yes to doing yes. So it's going to take act activism again to get back at, you know, ad advocacy to now hold, the administration and Congress and business leaders accountable to actually say, okay, you made these commitments. Now we need you to honor these commitments and follow and make sure that they are honoring those commitments. And it's going to continue to, after as I say, lather, rinse, repeat, do it, do it over and over again. So, you know, I don't know if that is as disruptive as the, as the, as the uh, caller was asking, but from our perspective, it is, you know, shaking, shaking the trees to actually get policymakers to bring hunger and nutrition, bring the attention and awareness that we think it rightfully deserves. And quite honestly, we thought it deserves, it's deserved a, lo a long, for a long time. So, I mean, you know, that is something that we're doing from an alliance perspective. The other thing that we want to do is make sure that we want to ensure that individuals and communities that are drastically impacted by by hunger are at the table or or are their voices are being heard as it relates to policy being created we don't want to get in a case where we have those with resources writing policy on behalf of those without the resources the individuals without resources need to be at that same table or in the same room with those same with those policymakers to have the resources so we have worked with our communities and our partners to bring those individuals to the forefront, be in the room in the White House as as these recommendations are being drafted, push, provide pushback, even give us pushback on policies that we're trying to put forward from an advocacy perspective. You know, that's another area where I would say where we have thought differently over the last two years mm -hmm. you know, to 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 no longer be business as usual. Mm -hmm. We no longer want to have a case where we're advocating on behalf of people. We're advocating with people and oftentimes advocating behind them. So in other words, allow them to be on the forefront and lead their own movement. And we work in support of them. Great. No, I, I think, uh, Eric, that sounds much more than business as usual. And, and I, I see also, uh, you know, 
you mentioning things that are in relation to the inner development goals, it seems, in terms of collaborating and relating and, and action. So I, I, I um yeah, I, I applaud you for that. Um your question for the next uh guest. So my question for the next guest is where do you see where do what do you think is needed in order for us to make society a better place? And what drives you to do, do the great things that you're doing? And that's, of course, without knowing who the next guest is, but what drives that person? What what's drives them to continue to do the hard work? Great, thank you. Um, you know, Steve Hartman of CBS in the U.S., um, is examining at this moment, and I, I think he's making videos. I don't know if it's available on TV or only on the internet, but how one simple act of kindness can create a ripple effect. Uh-huh. I have two questions for you about that. One is, uh, what are your thoughts about you know the simple act of kindness and its potential to create a ripple effect? And, and second is, if I would ask you now, right now, um, to commit one simple act of kindness, you know, today or within this week, what would you do? So two questions. What What are your thoughts about, about this simple act of kindness? Second, what would you do? The first part is, obviously, I do think that simple act of kindness has a ripple effect. One, it kind of, the belief of when people say you pay it for it, someone does something for you or you see someone doing mm-hmm. something, you try to replicate that to the to the next person or uh, uh, also it it starts to set it also sets a, a certain standard and in, in mood um when you when a person does a simple act of kindness um then that person then the next person then wants to replicate and the next person replicates and that's the ripple effect i think that steve hartman talks about and that act of kindness can be minor to something you know macro um you know oftentimes i'll tell you for example my wife my 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 kids and i we volunteer at our church to go to to do um to pass to to uh pass out food and pack bags and stuff for folks in our community who 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 are struggling to put food on the table and that level of community service we were doing it for a while we were doing it almost at least twice a month has now bubbled up to where my oldest daughter is, you know, volunteering, you know, through her school, um, you know, has developed, you know, leadership opportunities and is now, you know, setting an example for my youngest daughter. And, and it's becoming something now where they, it's, it's something that's entrenched inside of them. You know, that was just a simple thing where, you know, one act of just doing something becomes habitual to the point now it's part of you. It's part of your ethos. Um, To answer your question about what is the challenge about the simple act of kindness, you know, I think, you know, here in Washington, we often see a, um, you know, there's often communities that are are impacted. Um, I think, you know, by by low income and, you know, poverty, crime, other things. The, the simple act of kindness I want to do is volunteer more. 
I spent a few a uh, few weeks ago. I was able to you know volunteer painting at a school, uh, local uh, middle school here in DC, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the, walking away with that level of fulfillment was something that I really enjoyed. But I also want to share that and bring my kids next time. But I we've also said that this is something we want to do more as a family, just overall volunteer more, do more where we are are doing things within our community. Um, you know, from a faith's perspective, we need to go go to church more. <laughs> but no, to be honest, though, I think you know, volunteering more is something that that we want to do. And I think you know, working at our local food bank is is a is a first start. Music is is very close to my heart, so I always have a question about music as well. If I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that <laughs> best embodies who Eric is, or at least who Eric is for a big part, which song or piece of music uh, would you pick and why? So I'm a huge fan of old school R&B. And uh, I would say the song that, embodies me the most is probably it's a song by the Commodores, Lionel Richie and the Commodores called Easy Like Sunday Morning. Ooh. <laughs> and although oh. that's <laughs> and although that song technically is about somebody breaking up with someone, <laughs> the premise behind it is mm-hmm. that he is the songwriter made a decision. And after he and that decision was a hard it may have been a hard decision to make, but once it was made, He's living by it. And then once he makes a decision that, mm-hmm. okay, I made this, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm fine with it. He's now, he's, 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 he's chilling, right? He's easy like, everything is easy like Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I try to think about life is when you make a decision, whether it's hard, especially a hard decision, once you make that decision, let it go and just let it, let it, let it. Because assuming that you've done all the due diligence you need to do leading up to that point, once that decision is made, just sit back and let it process how let it let it go how the process allows for it to go, and live by it. Try to take things in a way that's chill. I'm a very I'm a very relaxed. I try to be a very relaxed person. My wife often says she sees me like that. I'm a simple. She white often likes to tease me and say, "I like the simple things in life. Give me a barbecue grill, a cigar, and a glass of scotch, and I'm happy." <laughs> and 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 uh, and so that's kind of like what I feel like that song embodies because it, it 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 lets that person know like, hey, once I made my decision, I'm I'm going to sit back and like an easy Sunday stroll and just and just and kind of let my mind be free. And, you know, just for you, for your information and for the listeners who are not aware yet, all the songs that have been picked by my guests and we started from episode 19 are added to a, a playlist on Spotify called hashtag walk, talk, listen. And so easy from the Commodores will be added as well. And, and, you know, for those of you who don't know the Commodores, 
I really recommend you to check out this song and while you're listening to the Commodores, don't forget Brick House. So um <laughs> <laughs> do not forget Brick House, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, these conversations go always go fast, uh, um, Eric. Um any yeah, any last message, invitation, or question uh, for the listener? Definitely. I, well, I, Maurice, I just want to thank you for you know allowing me to come and talk with your audience. I would just say, you know, for folks who are interested in learning more about the Alliance in Hunger and our work, you can go to our website, alliance to inhunger.org. It's real easy, but it's real long, but alliance to inhunger.org. And there you will find more about the work we do learn more about our partners as well as our policy agenda and what we're trying to and how we're trying to accomplish it. I think that there's a lot of areas where individuals and organizations can become engaged around advocacy. And, and the Alliance really gives you a series of opportunities where you as an individual or you as an organization can really be a part to, of this movement to end hunger. So, you know, check out alliance10hunger.org and, and, and reach out to us. Great. And we'll make sure uh, that is all mentioned in the podcast notes as well. Um, yeah, Eric, um, any, yeah, any last question that I should have asked you? Any, or are, are you good? No, we're good. Okay. I'd like to thank you for, for um, you know, sharing your knowledge and wisdom, um, humor, um yeah, your being. So, so um, I really enjoyed it, and um, I I hope you too. And thank you so much, and all the best with everything you do. Thank you, and 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 good luck to you on your your walk, Maurice. And I'm I'm again, thank you for having me here. I really enjoyed it. With over eleven hundred miles walked, Maurice is yet again training to walk a hundred more. So, for those of you who aren't familiar, which if you're an avid listener, I'm sure you are. The 100 Mile Hunger Walk was started in 2012 by Maurice to raise funds and awareness to fight hunger and poverty around the world. This annual event came to be because Maurice was inspired by the spirit of volunteerism behind the CWS-sponsored Crop Hunger Walks, which are a community-organized charity event that takes place in over 500 locations across the U.S. each year. So because of this, Maurice decided to set out on his own journey and put his feet where his heart was. This year's 100 Mile Walk will take place from Monday, March 26th, to Saturday, April 1st, in Seattle, Washington. And on top of that, our fundraising campaign will run until the end of the summer. All the proceeds will go to support CWS's global programs that work to create a world where there is enough for all. So, how does a 100-mile work? Well, each year, Bloom walks 100 miles through CWS and crop communities and spends his time meeting with our crop volunteer teams, with beneficiaries, with local community members, political officials, students, artists, and other like-minded individuals, like yourself, who work to support their community and hunger and promote a healthy and nutritious lifestyle. This year's theme is centered around the inner development goals. The idea behind these is that we must first unlock and grow our inner capacity, skills, and abilities to fully materialize humanitarian transformation. These IDGs are guiding principles that help us achieve our goals as we work with local communities here in the U.S. as well as in the 60 plus countries that we work in to help end hunger and poverty while building healthy communities through increased nutritious lifestyles, especially for children. So what are some ways that you can get involved? Well, for those in the Seattle area, you can come out and walk with us for a mile, maybe two, or you can see how long you last. But don't worry, you can always come out and just say hi, meet with Maurice, have a chat, and then send him on his way. So on top of that, 
Another easy way to get involved is to make a donation. Participants are also able to start their own fundraising page to continue their efforts by reaching out to their own communities to get involved as well. So to make a donation or start your own fundraising page, click the link. Well, of course, you're wondering where. <laughs> Go to the podcast notes and click in the links. In other exciting news, this year, Maurice has been chosen to be an ambassador for Knox Gear. Knox Gear is a brand company who makes safety and visibility gear for people and their pets who love to walk, run, play sports, or anyone who lives an active or outdoor lifestyle. And yes, you're right. Also, this link can be found in the podcast notes. When the link is used to make any Knox Gear purchase, 10% of the total purchase will be donated back to support CWS hunger and nutrition programs. So for anybody interested in joining us, getting more involved, or simply just wanting to stay connected, you can send us an email at innovationhub at cwsglobal.org. You're right. You can find the link again in the podcast notes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you haven't already, become a Walk, Talk, Listen subscriber. So let's get walking together. And don't forget to hashtag go the extra hundred mile. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram